Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Samira Stalks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to episode 28 with me, your host, Samira Sohail. This week, I was joined by a new media trailblazer, Sam Parr. Sam is the founder of The Hustle, a daily email newsletter on technology and business news aimed at millennials. Yep, you heard it right. In an age of video from Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook Live, and everything else, he's opted for email to connect with audiences. He likens it to having your smart best friend tell you the news. Its tone of voice is irreverent and intelligent, yet funny. And as such, The Hustle has racked up over half a million subscribers in a couple of years, is profitable, and also raised a million in funding from the likes of Tim Ferriss and other media moguls. From bumping into Tim walking his dog, writing Amazon romance novels, and microdosing on LSD for concentration, we journey through The Hustle's own hustle. Enjoy. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So in a line, can you explain what The Hustle is? The Hustle is a media company that creates content that helps young professionals make better decisions throughout their day. Um, And we're starting by giving uh, millions of people throughout the world their daily business news. You actually have practically zero media experience. Can you take us? Uh, oh, go on. Yeah, I have my media experience is as long as the company has existed. Exactly. Can you take us back to the first HustleCon event which you put on, which actually seeded the idea for the hustle? Before this company, I had another company and, and we had a small exit. I'd sold it for a little bit. And after selling it, I was looking for the next company, my, my next company to start. And I wasn't sure what to do. And so my idea was to host a conference called HustleCon, which was pretty much a TED Talk for Entrepreneurs style uh, conference. The idea was I will host this event and hopefully find inspiration by meeting other smart and intelligent people. And the way I think I launched the, I came up with the idea and launched the website around June 7th and the event happened on August 1st. And the way in which I got the word out was by creating content, specifically a newsletter. And in that newsletter, I made fun of myself and wrote funny articles about each speaker. And the uh, newsletter actually got probably more more popular than the conference, and it ended up selling like 365 or 360 tickets in that short amount of time and made tens of thousands of dollars in profit, which was a total surprise as I expected to lose money. That was the first event. It's always a welcome surprise when something like that happens. Yeah, it was awesome. Can you talk about, you know, why you think or why you picked what I call old school, almost spammy email uh, in a world where media is now dominated by video. What do you think the benefits are versus other Yeah, mediums? so you know, our vision is we want to become a very large media company that uh, has content on tons of different mediums. Um, we're starting with email because email, since, since it began, 25 years ago, or maybe a little longer actually now, email has changed relatively little. And unless something major happens, it's not going to change very much uh, in the future, or at least in the immediate future. Whereas Facebook, uh, where most media companies began to rely on for their traffic, changes dramatically in a matter of months. And so in order to build uh, 
a great media company, which means not only great content, but also a great business that can sustain itself. We couldn't rely on Facebook to get our traffic because that would have been irresponsible, I think, and stupid. And so email just seemed like the best uh, medium in order to begin because the economics are wonderful and the user experience is fantastic. Can you describe the tone of voice of the hustle? Yeah, so the idea is to be irreverent. We call it the John Stewart effect, which means we try to be very intelligent, but funny, and we'll make fun of ourselves and we'll make fun of other people. And because of that, people seem to trust us more because we don't take ourselves too seriously, yet we're intelligent and make what I think interesting points. And so um, I would say that that that's kind of how we approach the voice, which is talk like our really intelligent and funny friends would talk. Okay. Unlike another of a number of other players on the scene, say Vice or BuzzFeed or even the Skim, I think you know you guys and the Hustle represent a charge against maybe traditional media and journalism with more short, snappy, colloquial but still on-point content. Uh, what do you say to the kind of long-form journalists out there who think you might be? worsening the attention span of millennials and readers today? I certainly think there's a place for it, but I, I think that most journalists are very, they create stuff to make themselves happy, not their audience happy. And, and because of that, they can be, a lot of times they can be quite snooty as to what they'll produce. And they automatically think that the amount of time in which it takes to consume something equals quality. And that's a really crappy way to think about things because it should be the value that the reader gets equals quality or the action that you can inspire the reader to take equals quality. And oftentimes that's not associated or that's not uh, correlated with length in which it takes to do something. With us, we just want to make people really smart in the amount of time in which we're given to do that. And in today's day and age, there's a lot of people fighting for attention. And so we're starting with a small amount of people's day and hopefully we want to expand that but you know i think that we just have to look at people's behavior and build our product around people's behavior um and since the early heydays with the hustle i would say as a ardent follower and um, the tone has gone from a more i would say broy type yeah. tone to attract a more female demographic why and how did you do this well i think that when it comes to making a splash when you first launch a company you have to know not only who you want to make love you, but also who you want to anger. Because at the end of the day, like controversy helps you get users when you're a small company with very little resources. And controversy is a fantastic way to get PR. And so when we launched, the first thing, it, it, you're right, it was masculine. And we've transitioned from that. It was a very male-oriented uh, company. And the reason was is we wanted the, our core base at first was 90% males. And so in order to make our company more popular, we wanted to create stuff that they loved and they would share more. Additionally, um, it was me doing most of the writing for my friends. Um, I'm, I'm a, a man and most of my friends are, are males just like me. So I wrote stuff that really uh, engaged them. But as we've grown, uh, we realized that we were really pigeoning hole ourselves if we only did if we only had this masculine voice. And so when we when we expanded our editorial team, so the the woman who runs our editorial team now, well, I mean she's she's a she, she's a a very funny uh, a woman. And at the time, 
80% of our audience when we hired her was men. And we purposely made the decision that if we hired, if we had a more diverse employee base, then our content would be more diverse. Yeah. And our audience would be bigger and our business would be more profitable. And so we made that decision, I think like eight months in, and it was a wonderful decision. I actually was not, in, I'll get my, this was my co-founder's idea. And honestly, I was not in favor of it because I thought that we have to just appeal to our core group, our core guys. We made a very great hire that, uh, and she has since, uh, kind of changed the voice a little bit. And can you talk about where the company is today? Uh, how many subscribers? What kind of branded content deals are you doing? Yeah, so uh, we're at 15, I think 15, we'll, we're, we'll be at like 17 full-time people in the next two or three weeks. We've, um, we're profitable. We've raised about a million bucks in funding from a lot of uh, really cool media founders like Tim Ferriss or um, Jake, who you know, the founders of NerdWallet and a bunch of other folks, the founders of Bleacher Report. Um, but we're profitable. Um, we have we haven't announced our exact number of where we are, but we'll just say we're about half a million subscribers. Um, that was the last that we've not announced it. And we make meaningful revenue from advertising. And our uh, partners that we that we've worked with for advertisers include uh, Red Bull, uh, Walmart, Airbnb, and a lot of the a lot of large a lot of large partners um, that you probably know about. Uh, so. Microsoft, I could keep going, but you get the idea. Great. And let's talk about that growth trajectory and uh, of the 0.5 million subscribers, which is, you know, uh, no easy feat, especially in a world where people are using tools to declutter their inbox. Um, talk about some of the growth tactics that you use, such as the ambassador program or other things that you think have helped with the, the spread of the hustle. Yeah, so to get to our first couple hundred thousand users, we didn't have too many growth tactics. And arguably, our growth team at The Hustle is our most underdeveloped team, which is interesting. So, like, the really crappy answer is we wanted to create a really good product, and that spread word of mouth. So that's a huge tactic, but that was the first thing that we did. And so our, our, our biggest growth was word of mouth. Now, and able to uh, empower our people to share more, we uh, created an ambassador program, which has helped a ton. Uh, each we, we have probably um, I, I don't have the top the number off the top of my head, but roughly three thousand ambassadors, two thousand of which are part of a, a Facebook group where we talk about uh, news and we have uh, Q and A's with really interesting people. That has helped a ton with growth. And basically, what that means is every time someone, or not every time, but like a certain amount, uh, once someone has interacted a certain amount with our email. They get a unique URL and they can share that with their friends and they can get access to this group as well as uh, get t-shirts and stickers and all types of really cool swag that we've made. So that has helped us grow a ton. Another thing that has helped us grow is um, we've, we've dabbled with Facebook advertising. That hasn't been that meaningful or it hasn't been that impactful, but it has helped us grow. And then the third way in which we've grow is, grown is by creating a ton of content. So our website gets around a million people a month coming to the website to read our blog. And that has helped a ton by getting, uh, by helping us get subscribers. Excellent. And I always think the startup and media world share a lot of similarities. They call what I take a scattering seeds approach when it comes to waiting for something to hit. Um, VCs, at least in London, normally run a mile when you come to them with a media proposition as a startup idea. 
And you mentioned earlier that you'd been very successful in, in raising your million to date. Um, can you take us through that raise and what you think your best fundraising hack has been? Okay, that, there was a lot of points that you made there. I would say that one, the reason why we've been somewhat successful with raising money is uh, we've got really good business fundamentals. Um, unfortunately, in Silicon Valley, a lot of entrepreneurs are not very good business people, um, or at least they don't. I don't think that a lot of people run their operation correctly. And early on, people could see that we knew how to make money and we knew how to run a tight organization. And while we can definitely certainly improve a lot, that, that was quite clear early on. And so with our investors, I started like years ago contacting these people and I would just contact like the founders of Bleacher Report, the founders of NerdWallet, the founders of um, Business Insider or Tim Ferriss. I basically made contact with these people um, years ago and I would ask them their opinion on things. I would ask their just little like bits and pieces of advice. Like this one, one of our big investors who I, who I admire most maybe of all of everyone, he, his company was selling books early on. And I just like tweeted at him. I said, Hey, like, you know, why were you guys selling books early on when you were a digital, a digital media company? And he just answered it. And so I just did that a ton. And I, created relationships with these people. And over the years, since 2012 or so, they've seen me grow and they've seen me execute on even something small like a conference. And in doing that, they began to, they, they started trusting me and they, they trusted, they trusted in the fact that I knew how to execute on something, even if it's small. Also like hosting a conference, all of our early investors were speakers at our conference. And so they actually came to the event and they saw that we were able to bring like a thousand people. And they're like, oh, that's kind of, this is at least, at the very least, this is interesting. I'll tell you the story that people like most. So we raised money from Tim Ferriss and Tim Ferriss is um, the author of the four hour work week. And he has a, a kind of a cult following for his website. So the way in which I met him, and this is kind of a representation of how most of our investors came to be was he had reached out to us asking how to build an email list because he wanted to go hard on email. And we were kind of a, uh, uh, not quite leading the way, but we were big in the space. He just uh, asked me to meet with him um, and go out to lunch with him and teach him a little bit about email. But months before that, he was actually, he, he is, or he was a he was my neighbor and we would walk our dogs together. Where do you where, live, Sam? <laughs> like, it was just a total coincidence. I lived in this neighborhood called Glen Park. It was a total coincidence. And I would see him out walking his dog and I... Would I have a dog? You a dog. Her dog. No, I had a dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a dog, and we would just let our dogs play together, and we would talk about neighborly things. I would never talk about business other than saying like, "Oh, hey, I'm listening to your podcast now. Uh, I thought this this podcast was particularly good," and that was probably it. And then we would just talk about like dog leashes or like tennis, the tennis court that they are building in the neighborhood. And um, never once did I tell him who I was or what I did for work. And then he emailed me and asked who I was and I met him, um, or he asked to meet and I met him at lunch to talk. And he was like, oh wait, you are the guy who I'm emailing. Like, it was a total coincidence that it, it was, I, I was the guy walking the dog. Like he didn't know until we met up. And doing that, I think it built up a lot of trust with him that I wasn't after. Like, and a lot of these investors, 
they get that all the time. They have people asking for shit all the time, like, hey, will you invest? And they have people trying to scheme on them all the time. And I, and I, and I really wasn't trying to scheme on him. And because of that, he eventually asked to invest in, in us uh, because he saw that, you know, we were genuine people and we were building a cool business. And it was never like me asking him. And that happened quite, quite a bit where we didn't actually ask for funding from a lot of people. It was mostly people coming to us because we just built relationships with them. And uh, that was one of the more popular stories as to how we raised a little bit of money. And to all the kind of email writers or content uh, marketers out there, what would you say three top tips are for creating? What did you tell Tim at the first lunch about how to create a killer email list? Yeah, the first is keep everything native. Most people treat their emails as like RSS feeds, meaning they just want people to click off on different articles. Um, Email, in the same way that social is a totally different platform from running a blog, email is totally different from um, a website. And so most people treat email simply as a way to get people to click to a website, whereas I'd argue you should keep everything native in the email while you have someone's attention. And that's actually not how most people do it. So I think that's the biggest tip. The second thing I would do is uh, that I try to tell people is you have to be extremely consistent. Email creates a, a email when done properly can do it, can become a habit. Um, and so whatever you want to do, um, pick a cadence and stick to it no matter what. I think that's super important. Um, and the third most important thing is, is study traditional copywriting techniques because email, um, you, you have a, ver- a little bit shorter of amount of time in order to get people's attention. Whereas on a website, people can sometimes are used to digging into a long read, but with email, people are not used to that traditional like direct marketing um, copywriting techniques do a really good job of teaching people how to make copy flow. So someone goes down the slippery slope and wants to read more and more and more. And so we teach and talk a lot about copywriting and, and that has helped big time. Do you have any resources to recommend? Yeah. So there's this guy named Neville Medora. He's got a course called Copywriting Course. Um, which is wonderful. One thing that changed my life was called Copy Hour, copyhour.com. Basically what it is is I would spend about an hour to a day for many, many months and I would hand write really famous marketing campaigns. I would write them out by hand because that taught me how to like uh, the texture and the feeling of how other people wrote in the same way that when you want to learn guitar, you just copy like your favorite bands and then you make your own music. Copywriting is quite similar. So I would write I would write stuff out by hand, so that helped. And then the third thing would be Joe Sugarman's most famous book, Advertising Secrets of the Written Word. It changed my life, and uh, it talks all about um, wonderful strategies and tactics for copywriting. Great, thank you. Um, So the juggernauts, I call them, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, they're all starting to invest themselves in original content. And not only are they starting to create content, they obviously own the distribution platforms to be able to surface that i mean how do you think smaller players like you uh, will need to adapt to survive well i think that or not i think i know that facebook is paying media companies like us to create content because they are not fantastic at it they what they are fantastic at is distribution not creation and so um i believe that facebook is just like the cable companies uh, many years ago, and there will still be the companies that make Friends or that make Seinfeld. So I believe that uh, media companies like The Hustle will become those companies. 
I also think that media and content is like, I mean, it's one of the biggest industries in the whole world. So although Facebook will um, and Google can dominate, there's still a ton of space. I mean, look at Disney, look at NBC. I mean, look at uh, Viacom. I mean, these are massive, massive or, or News Corp or CNN. These are many tens of billions of dollars a year businesses um, that exist in the world of Facebook and Google. So I, I, I certainly, the cool thing about media as opposed to social media is there can be many winners. Um, whereas social media, there's really only like three or four. I mean, very, 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 very few. Um, there can be many winners in media. And so um, the way in which we'll adapt is just by creating a really cult following, a, a, hopefully a large cult following. And I think that will pay huge dividends. And then we'll focus on content creation. Not that I want to tie you with this brush, but I'm sure many do in terms of clickbait content or fake news. I mean, what are your views on, on that space right now? I certainly think it exists. Um, you know, I define clickbait as an article that promises something or content that promises something in the headline and doesn't deliver. So I think that it's important to deliver on your promise. So I like I like having ridiculous headlines, but I also like making the content deliver on what that crazy headline is. But in terms of fake news, I definitely think it's real. I mean, the economics of the page view driven journalism, you gotta get page views. And the best way to do that is to stir up shit that doesn't exist. Um, and I'm actually happy that this whole fake news thing is is top of mind because it's making company it's making it easier for companies like us to succeed since most young people don't trust the legacy media brands. I I totally buy that fake news is a thing. It's not just some, some like stupid theory that Donald Trump says that everyone that he thinks exists that doesn't. It, it certainly is a 100% real thing. I, I think he's wrong, obviously, in how he addresses it or who he's talking about. But it's totally true. And so I'm happy it, it exists because it's helping companies like us succeed. Excellent. And akin to Tim, your neighbor, um, the hustle prides itself on, I would say, undertaking some more out there life hacking experiments, whether that's micro LSDing to see if that improves concentration and other wild events. Um, can you take us through one of your own off the wall experiments? So when we first launched the company, um, we, I had a friend, uh, a, a friend who was a shady internet marketer, and he was writing books that, in very blunt terms, he was writing books that helped nerds get laid. And he himself was a nerd, but he wasn't getting laid. And the way in which he was writing these books was basically copying other people who wrote books on how to get laid. And then they would buy fake reviews on Amazon and create like a really sexy cover image and make like 50 grand a month doing it. And I thought that was, a, and then, and then they would call themselves best-selling authors and then get like speaking gigs where they would charge more money. And I thought that was incredibly unethical and incredibly shady. And so when we first launched the very first two articles we wrote were about how this guy was doing this. And then my co-founder and I copied the process and we became a best-selling author in a week by ripping off um, the particular niche that we chose because it had a lot of movement and liquidity and volatility was basically middle-aged women in middle America who loved romance novels. And so we ripped off a romance novel, copied the process this guy told us of buying fake reviews and people started buying this book. And so that was a crazy experiment um, we ended up uh, got a, get, uh, getting like 
almost we almost got sued by the largest publisher of romance novels, which is you know a billion dollar company, and uh, we kind of pissed off Amazon. Um, but you know we wanted to make a point that this was really shady, that people were doing it, and that Amazon wasn't doing a very good job of policing it. And so um, we became a best-selling author, you know, by definition, in that we were the number one selling book in a in a week in our category. But we became a best-selling author in a week. Cool. <laughs> Wasn't yeah. expecting that. Can you take us through the most unexpected story from the hustle that's gone viral, and why do you think it did? We had. Um, I've, we've never revealed who it was. It could be me, or it could be someone who works here. We've never revealed it. Um, but you mentioned it earlier. We had someone go pretty deep on testing uh, LSD. The idea is that um, there was a Berkeley professor that claimed, and he had evidence to back it up, but he claimed that microdosing, which means taking roughly a tenth of a typical dose of LSD, would promote creativity, reduce stress, and make people happier. And so we tried it ourselves, where we um, and we wrote about how we bought LSD on. Um, um, not the Silk Road, but something like it, the dark web. We we went through a very kind of in-depth process on testing it and trying it out, and we wrote about our experience, and people seem to love that. People to this day talk about that all the time because uh, everyone wants to improve their creativity and reduce stress, but a lot of people are too afraid to try LSD because it's illegal or they're afraid of like losing their shit. And so we uh, that has been millions of people have seen that article. Okay. And what, like, from articles like that, what have you deciphered about the ingredients of content virality? There's a certain, there's certain types of emotion that get more shares than not. So, for example, anger, awe, and laughter um, do really good of getting shares. Um, depression, so, like, sad stuff does a horrible job. So it's important before writing an article that you want to get a lot of traffic to understand what emotion you want people to feel after reading it. And so uh, those three emotions do a really good job of getting shares. Great. Cool. Which is why we, we when we wrote that Kindle Kindle article, um, the people who shared it most, remember how I said earlier, you want to piss off a certain type of person as well as make a certain type of person love you. The people who shared it most were middle-aged women in middle America because they thought that we were mocking them. We weren't purposely mocking them. But we were using their cat, their their romance novels as a as an example, and they shared the crap out of it because they were so pissed off at us, and that worked wonderfully. That article was shared like fifteen or twenty thousand times. You'll have a good one for this. Can you tell us a funny fail story of who you've stalked and how that's gone? I'll tell a story that I don't think I've told publicly, but so basically, before Tim and I were buddies because of being neighbors, I wanted him to speak at an event I was hosting maybe, and this was maybe in 2012. And so I used his image and some Facebook ads as well as some LinkedIn ads. And I ran Facebook marketing and LinkedIn marketing towards people who I thought would know him. And it was like, do you know timferris.com? And I offered like a bounty of like $500 for an introduction or something like that. I got he doesn't know that I did this, so uh, hopefully he doesn't listen to this. But <laughs> I um, got angry letters from his people saying, don't use his face for in advertising. This is like a, a breach of whatever. I, I don't actually, I don't know if it was, if it's quite illegal or not. It could be. It made, it made him angry, not happy to see that I was <laughs> advertising with his face on it. But honestly, that 
that strategy works sometimes, but with him, it totally backfired. They, they hated it. Okay. Okay. Wouldn't recommend that. Um, can you take us to your lowest point in the hustle journey where you thought, game's up, you know, potentially need to bow out. We've gone too far. That happens a lot. Uh, uh, when we, the, very, the, the first week we launched the company, it was that Kindle thing. That was the first article. And I thought we were going to get the, it was uh, Harlequin, I think, is the name of the publisher. And I think it's owned by some, either Harlequin's an independent company or they're owned by a really large company. But they emailed us like saying, like, hey, you just. So basically, when we plagiarized a book, we thought that we were doing, a, we thought that we had plagiarized it from a small company. And we did a very bad job of doing due diligence. And it was, the publisher was like, the, like a massive publisher. And we totally ripped them off and embarrassed them you know, in this article. And they emailed us saying like, you guys just violated so many copyright laws, it's not even funny, like, you need to stop. And I thought that first week, I was like, we're, we're going out of business. Our very first article, they're suing us, we're, we're screwed. In reality, you know, we're, we were such a small fry that they didn't wanna waste their time. But I, I thought, I stressed out for like a week where I was like, we, we're going out of business. We, our very first week, we've totally screwed it up. And this publisher, you know, we had only raised like half a million bucks. So let's say we don't, we have, or we only had, I had like half a million dollars that I invested from the conferences and from a small uh, friends and family round. And I was like, well, we have half a million dollars in the bank in our first week. Surely they're going to sue us for more than that. So we're, we're going bankrupt. We're going out of business. I am also a big fan of taking sabbaticals and read that you took a motorcycle trip across the US. Why did you do it and what do you think that did for you? Well, you know, I'm a very emotional person. Um, I have lots of ups and downs and I had just sold my business and I had hosted HustleCon and it was a mild success, at least more successful than I thought it was going to be. And I kind of flipped out. I was like, I was 25 at the time and I think it was a normal response to, uh, and I'd broken up with the girlfriend. I also, it was my one year anniversary from giving up alcohol and which was a huge challenge for me. And I flipped out. I was like, I don't know what I want in life. I don't know why I have what I thought would make me happy yet. I'm not happy. And I kind of flipped. I'm not, yeah, I would say I flipped out where I didn't know, like, I was like, why I should be so pumped right now about life, but I'm still uncertain. And so I like, in a, I love riding motorcycles. I've been riding motorcycles my whole life. And I just said, I'm just going to, I'm bailing. I'm just going to take like however long I need. And I'm just going to ride my motorcycle until I don't feel like riding anymore. And so I, on amazon.com i bought like a sleeping bag and a tent and i strapped it onto my motorcycle and i just i just left and i read a bunch of great books while i was doing that and i spent a ton of time alone um in nature and i just reflected and it was incredibly impactful and it helped me understand a little bit about what i wanted to do for the next handful of years at least so just a series of quick fire questions so don't think too much um what is your favorite music jam at the moment? Uh, the Avid Brothers um, is a—they're a southern, like a southern rock and roll band. Um, they have a song called "I Killed Sally's Lover," and it's a—I uh, love the banjo, and, and it has banjo playing real fast, and it keeps me going at work. I—I I, I keep it on repeat. 
Okay. What was the last thing that inspired you? I talked to a, one of our investors. His name is Tucker Max. Um, he's an author, and he's got a very controversial uh, reputation because in the past he's been pretty misogynistic and um, kind of a jerk, but he's since, I think, grown a lot. Well, anyway, he um, sent me a link to um, a document that he'd wrote about building a really fantastic culture at his company, and I was incredibly inspired that, A, a guy who used to be a jerk has grown to be so caring for his employees and create such an inclusive and welcoming work environment, and B, the thought that he put into this document was just incredibly inspiring about how it inspired me to care way more than I do about the people who uh, work at my company. Great. Um, which childhood character, fictional character, do you remind yourself of? TJ from the TV show Recess. He was he was kind of a go-getter, but he was very simple and he wasn't fancy. So TJ from uh, the cartoon Recess. Okay. What tea do you drink? Unsweetened black iced tea. Good. And what is your favorite book? Um, Titan, the biography of John Rockefeller. He was uh, an incredibly, incredibly successful business person, but he was one of the few incredibly successful business people who was also uh, a wonderful family man. Great. And lastly, what would you say your Sam-isms are? So what parting advice would you give to anyone out there looking to start their own hustle? Yeah, I think I, I, I speak in, in phrases a lot, so uh, there's probably a lot of them, but one that I really believe in is um, not putting your heroes on a pedestal. Um, I've met a lot of my heroes in terms of like my business heroes, and the thing, my biggest takeaway was I didn't actually think that they were uh, much more intelligent than me, or at least they weren't significantly smarter than I was or I am in terms of how success, more successful they are than I am. And so um, one thing that it taught me was that the people who we consider, quote, successful, they're really just like you and I. And um, when, when, when people put them on a pedestal, it just makes it seem like those accomplishments are actually out of reach. And when you think that they are just like you and me, then it, it makes it a lot easier to achieve uh, great things. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was fun. Thanks for listening. Please do reach out on at Samira Storks over Instagram or Twitter and share this episode with your tech fiend friends for their next commute. If you like this one, you may also enjoy episode 18 with Harry Stebbings, the mastermind behind the 20 Minute VC podcast. And join me next week when I'm joined by another guest. Bye.